Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner, from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey there, everyone. I hope you're all having a wonderful start to the holiday season. As we get ready to close out another year here on Franchise Empires, I just wanted to take the time to thank each and every one of you for tuning into the pod this year. Seriously, I could not have done this without your support. I can't believe that we kicked off this podcast all the way back in Q1 of 2022. It's really been an incredible ride so far. And since it's almost the new year, I'm feeling a little bit nostalgic. So I thought it would be awesome to revisit some of the best moments of the pod with some of the most insanely talented guests we've had on over the past few years. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek, and Wolfpack franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. So this first clip is a major throwback to when Craig Avira and Rose White of Cali Coffee graced the mic. They shared some great insights on how they transitioned from the daily grind of operations to becoming franchisors. And I just loved how much they value their employees, and you can really tell how much heart they put into their franchisees. Let's dive in, shall we? And so, since you've only, you're, you're pretty new into the franchising aspect, but how has that been? And, and I'm curious from like your guys' perspective as founders and operators of the corporate stores, but now it's like you have this whole new division, basically. And I often, you know, if founders of, or people looking to franchise their concept, I kind of say is like, hey, it's almost like starting a second business because it's a totally different ball game of finding operators, you know, needing a CRM and doing franchise sales and marketing and walking people through what's typically like a two to six month sales cycle. So yeah, what's that been like? Yeah, I, I mean, you're 100% right. Like our roles in the company have, have vastly shifted because we worked in the store so many days in a row and that was the grind, right? Every day and we loved it. Like I, we started this company because I fell in love with making drinks, talking to customers, serving people. Like the whole interaction was why we started the business. It wasn't to build this, you know, giant company that is everywhere and so, once you start to shift, you're like, dang, like I need our roles need to shift because if we don't do that, who's going to do it? So we're so lucky to have the crew that we have, like the employees we have. I think we have over 140 employees now yeah. um, amongst three stores or close to it. You know, we have seasonal ones because they go to college. And yeah, but they come back and uh, there's so many people who have like, I'm so impressed with them because not only are like, they're just the best, you know, in general, but they have a lot of them have seen where Cali can go. They're like, okay, like they... You hear so many stories about like companies at the ground level and where people can go if they get into the ground level and all that. And so a lot of our employees are, they were sort of going to school, but they didn't know why, or they were in a job that they didn't like. And so they came over here to try this out. And then they've kind of realized like, and asked us like, Hey, like, can I grow with you guys? Like, I don't know what I want to do in 10 years. Can I, what if I'm with Cali? And we're like, you're awesome. Yes. I want to <laughs> 30 more of you. Just building an army, like a soldier, this team of like, excited young people who can do it, you know? So 
that's amazing to us. And then it creates more opportunities. So now, like you said, it creates a franchising. Well, now we can have job opportunities for these people who are like, I want to make like serious cash. We're like, there are going to be spots where you can do that. Just hang in there. We're growing all the time and, and we're going to need people to fill these roles. And it's pretty incredible that yeah. aspect of it. And that's like he said, it's, it's allowed us to finally like step off a bar, off making drinks and be so confident that really nothing has changed. Like, I mean, you read our reviews now of people just raving about the customer service or they'll shoot us an Instagram message and say, Hey, Cali coffee. I was just at the shop. I was having a really bad day and the girl taking my order noticed and she bought my drink. And she's like, I broke down in tears because that's no way. I've never heard of that before. That's amazing. Next up, there's Drew Carpenito, the brains behind the franchise investment system. We got into a super fascinating tangent about why Stretch Lab took off. And seriously, this one still puzzles me to this day how a place where you just stretch became a franchise beast. I'll let Drew explain Stretch Lab's sneakily stealthy model though. As he explains, sometimes you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just have to find a better mousetrap to capture demand. If I was to break it down, right, like Drew Carpenter's opinion, you know, anybody who's looking at doing a franchise needs to do their own independent investigation. There's my disclaimer, like you got to evaluate all these businesses. But like a lot of the really the franchises I think that you see like take off and not not getting on the news kind of thing, but like do a good job of expanding nationwide and, and do create a network of happy and profitable franchisees. Like they're not creating a market, right? Like they're taking something that people either know about or are already purchasing and just figuring out a better mousetrap to capture some portion of that demand into their business. They don't, and they typically don't need to be the biggest player in town in order to have a very successful business, right? So they're not creating a market. A lot of times they're tapping into something like Stretch Lab, right? Like Stretch Lab ended up being a runner. And I, when I first heard about Stretch Lab, I was like, I don't get it. Well, I was, you know, <laughs> I had the head trash like everybody else did. And, you know, I think they went through a little bit of learnings, but if you think about it, right? Like Stretch Lab, stretching's not new. We all know we should be stretching more and it's good for our bodies, good to prevent injury, recover from injury, the whole nine yards, right? But nobody had really mainstreamed it. Well, Stretch Lab ended up mainstreaming it. And I think they, you know, they'll probably tell you something differently, but I think they accidentally tapped into this wide demographic of people from like the 15 year old super athletic kid whose parents are paying for everything under the sun to make him the next Pey Peyton Manning or whatever. And then to the 70 year old that can't exercise, but stretching is a good way for them to get some muscle movement. So you know, Stretch Lab was one of these businesses that got just kind of mainstreamed the stretching idea and um, it took off. Yeah, it's interesting because like I'm thinking it's like a, I don't know much about the actual, like if I was to walk into one, what the class would be like. Like, I don't know if it's one-to-one, -one, like is, is it Stretch Lab? Yeah. Like it feels like lazy person's yoga. Oh, dude, go. Yeah, you're in, a, you're, yeah, go, you're in Austin, go check it out. Dude, you lay on a table, it's 1, 1,500 square feet, super small footprint. And they have eight tables set up. There's no private rooms. So like everybody's getting stretched out in front of each other. And it's got this cool hip vibe, but it's simple build out, simple construction, which drives down the traditional investment to get one open. And again, I don't know what I'm allowed to say, but put it this way. The people that I know that have owned stretch labs, you'd be surprised at what kind of numbers they're driving out of a thousand square feet of a location. Is it one employee per person? Like meaning like, yeah. So I just have an individual person stretching me out. There's a flexologist, man. You lay on, lay on the table for 25 minutes and, and a flexologist does her thing and stretches out your body. How much does that cost me as a customer? 
Oh man, um, they've from what I understand they've been pushing the prices because I can. Um, I think it starts at a twenty-five minute stretch. I, I mean, we can look this up. Just j- what's your guess? I want to say it's like a dollar a minute kind of thing, typically, maybe it, or more. It could be more than that. Like I, I got in under a founding membership, and it was like two hundred bucks a month for four fifty-minute stretches, which I don't think that they make that offer anymore because that that was a good deal. So I think it. If I had to guess, that would probably be like a $300, $350 a month membership. But that's for the 50-minute stretch. If you do the 25s, which you can do, it'd be half that or something, probably. It's just like a stretch where I'm sitting there and I'm like, if anyone's out there, like I used to play soccer. We would do stretch sessions sometimes. Like they're working you, like where you're touching your toes to the point you're breaking a sweat. It's like almost painful. Like, is that the kind of thing it is? Or am I like checking my phone, scrolling Instagram while they're stretching me out here? Yeah, no, I mean, it's probably similar to yoga in some ways like there's breathing that you want to synchronize with the stretching and so by having somebody else stretch you out you get a 10x deeper stretch or whatever the number is they will apply like they'll keep kind of increasing the resistance or the the depth of the stretch and and the breathing helps a lot and then you just kind of you have like a safe word that you tell them once (laughs) once it gets if it's too much so it's interesting Andrew Garcia is a multi-brand franchise aficionado with ventures like ServPro and Ellie Mental Health. His belief in investing in franchise with an altruistic purpose was really an inspiration. And in this next clip, he discussed how he's using Ellie Mental Health to bring positive change to the franchising community. So you've been in that business for a few years now, and I know also that you've purchased the territory of a separate brand for Ellie Mental Health. Yes. Um, which for folks who maybe don't know, if you subscribe to the Wolf Report newsletter, you probably saw it covered in the last few months. But yeah, I mean, that franchise has taken off and sold hundreds and hundreds of units. Yep. So fast growing brand. Uh, yeah, from your perspective, as you know, you've seen a few brands and owned a few brands prior to that already. So, yep. you know, what excited you about the brand to the point where you're like, yeah, let's become multi-brand franchise owners? Yeah, that's a great question. So honestly, we were not actively looking at that point for, you know, a new opportunity. We said, you know, we'll, you know, we'll keep on Surf Pro, you know, keep building that. But we were looking for a timely opportunity to really make a positive impact on, on our communities. And we all know it's no secret at this point that there is a serious mental health crisis around the world, but specifically here in, here in the U.S. And regionally, it's worse than others. So we've always thought of ourselves as conscious capitalists. What can we do to make positive change while, you know, enriching our own lives and creating our own legacy? That's a tricky thing, you know, to to do in the business climate we're in. So yeah, it was very random. I was um, one of the multitude of like franchise search engines. I forget which one it was. It may have been (laughs) Flint or something like that. Yeah. And uh, really the logo just caught my eye. It, w- it was a really cool logo with the two elephants. I was like, oh, interesting. It's, it, it just looked fresh. I was like, oh, what is that? Yeah. Then I saw Ellie Mental Health. I was like, well, wait a minute. You think, you typically you don't think franchising and mental health in the same, usually they're not spoken in the same sentence. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Because typically you're going to see the really big players like Psych or some of these other, you know, regional or national players. And then you're going to have your standard, you know, solo practitioner who has a small practice. There wasn't really anything in the middle. So sure enough, started doing my research, found out it was a franchise model, which again, took a little bit of getting used to because when you think of franchising, you think of the restaurant industry or quick service restaurants, service businesses to a little bit of a lesser degree. So yeah, we did our due diligence. We talked to all the folks over there at LE Corporate in Minnesota, 
We did our uh, Discovery Day visit, and beyond the desire to make you know positive impact and positive change in our communities, the LE team there in Minnesota was really what you know kind of got us over the edge. There was just an integrity and an authenticity that we hadn't seen in other you know franchises that we had explored in the past, and really. Again, just a passion for the mission. So almost everyone there at LA Corporate comes from a therapist background, a clinical background. So that's a vote of confidence too, because you say, okay, you know, 98, 99% of folks in the organization have lived this, have been through this, have, you know, done this hard work. And now there's an opportunity for, you know, people like me and my partner who are not clinicians to say, okay, we can partake in their mission, you know, here locally in New Jersey and, you know, really take it to scale and say, okay, now, you know, this opportunity to affect the mental health in a positive way in our community would have never existed without this model. So, um, yeah, I mean, it all just, it felt right. It felt good. The timing was right, as I mentioned before, with the current crisis, um, especially in the adolescent community. So being able to not only, you know, build a business, have a great partner at LE Corporate or LE Headquarters in Minnesota, it's an opportunity to, you know, join forces and again, really, you know, make a strong impact and not just our local community, but even beyond that, because mental health, it affects generations and it affects, you know, beyond borders. So it's exciting in that regard. Um, we're very, very, uh, again, pleased with the concept and the people and the outlook. That's it. Promising. That's great to hear. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously from like a franchise perspective, it's been on my radar for a little while. So that's interesting just to, you're the first owner of one that I've spoken to. Jesse Koenig, the maestro behind Spud's Fries and founder of Swizzler, is revolutionizing fast food. His plan? To show industry giants like Burger King and McDonald's that high quality, ethically sourced fast food is possible. Here's how he sees the opportunity to capitalize on the success of Swizzler's famous Spud's French Fries and made the decision to sell them in local grocery stores. We always were like, quote unquote, like locally famous for our fries. We said really great fries. Made them ourselves, house cut. You know, did this kind of like Belgian style twice fried fry. You know, the same kind of quality fry you'd get going to a high-end restaurant. We were doing that for food trucks and for a restaurant. And then COVID hit, we were trying to figure out like, how do we, one, solve something for ourselves operationally because we're trying to do fresh pet fries, demands all over the place, and we don't know what's going to happen day to day. There's something we can do. And two, like over 50% of our business went digital overnight, right? Like delivery specifically. And we'd never dealt with that. We'd always been cooking to order off of food trucks and things. So we like got in the lab. We had a lot of free time on our hands given COVID and all the crazy shit that was going on. And we redesigned and re-engineered our process where we made at a centralized location where we used to run our food trucks out of, we created like a mini factory to make a hand cut fry there, but then freezing it in the process. So we actually found that by freezing it, you get like a crust on the outside. And like, if you talk to any high-end chefs, they probably know this too, where like you refrigerate and cool down the fries before you fry them. Freezing them is obviously better, but usually impractical in a restaurant kitchen in that you have this like layer on the outsides and you drop into a hot fryer it fries up that outside layer. It gives you a nice crispy outside, but keeps that like fluffy mashed potato inside. That is like in our mind, the restaurant quality fry. So when we did this, we like kind of had this aha moment that not only is this a way better house cut fry that you can just like open a bag and have ready in you know, two minutes and 30 seconds, but also like 
now that it's frozen, like we get that as in the grocery store. We might start walking the aisles and realize like, holy shit, these are the same brands in the 90s. And we were kids with our parents in the grocery store. The same, you know, red and yellow bags, the same sort of negative stigma around fast food, around like the quote unquote, like freezer fries, like the oven fries. You maybe add growing up and just like dunked in ketchup. And you're like, they never were like that good, but it was French fries. It's just like part of your meal. Something you maybe grew a little bit fond of. So we started making Spud's fries, S-P-U-D-Z, like you mentioned, and just playing around with them and testing them out. We did a seasoned versions. We did like a sea salt one, a rosemary garlic, and Chesapeake. So I'm like an old day inspired one, like very regional, this area. And when we started testing them out, like you could put them in the air fryer or the oven to finish them and have them come out of there. And they tasted amazing. And like, of course, it's not going to do the exact same quality as coming out of a deep fryer, but these are literally the exact same fries we use at our restaurant. So like, if you did take our sea salt fries, for example, and you put some oil on your stove and you fried them up at 350, like you're going to have the exact same restaurant fry that you're getting um, out of the store, which is kind of amazing because as we learn more about the supply chain of where these things are coming from, there's basically like three or four companies in the entire North America that almost own the whole industry when it comes to potato manufacturing. There's like Simplot, Land Weston, McCain, Orida, which is owned by Kraft Heinz. And these giant companies are the ones that like make McDonald's fries, for example, right? They own these $100 million factories, multi $100 million factories. And when you're doing it at that scale, every second counts, right? So they start cutting corners a little bit and they do things to try to have as many pounds of fries go through their lines as fast as possible. So naturally, you're not going to get the highest quality thing. And we realized that by owning our own manufacturing, that we could tweak and tinker and do some cool stuff. And we wanted to prove out kind of incubate this idea. Could we be serving, like making lots of fries for not only our restaurant, but other restaurants? Could we grow these frozen fry brand in the grocery store? And the idea is that, to your point, if we want to scale a fast food restaurant doing things better nationally, we've got to find ways to get these economies of scale that the McDonald's or Burger King or Wendy's have when they're, you know, have thousands and thousands of units. And we realized that like out of one factory, we can sell thousands of grocery stores across the country or tons of restaurants and that we could actually achieve some of the same buying power and some of the same efficiencies that these big guys have. And by building our own network of regional farmers, we've had some experience doing that in the restaurant, and the beef side of things. So building up a network of like getting organic potatoes in the area, we're working on that right now, like getting them to grow on the East Coast and having a direct relationship and talking to folks like Zero Acre, we're trying to figure out how we can do a CPG, completely seed oil, simple ingredient CPG fry and like upgrade our fries there. So we're in the process of really building out this potato manufacturing side of the business. And that idea like unbundling fast food. How do we take the profit driver of fast food restaurants, French fries? How do we achieve economies of scale by like kind of taking almost like a Tesla business model, like a premium French fry that's just way better than the stuff in the grocery store. Start there and like work our costs down. How does Chris Kenny, the co-founder of Level 5 Capital, juggle a diverse portfolio of franchise investments? Well, his approach to choosing and investing in franchises is pure gold. So you're not going to want to miss how one of franchising's best thinks about finding, researching, and investing in franchise unit models. Last, but definitely not least, is a snippet from one of our most popular episodes of all time. Al Bakta is the principal at CMG Companies, working with brands including Taco Bell, KFC, Marriott, Hilton, IHG, Genghis Grill, Sonic, and Rent-A-Center, 
just to name a few. With more than 300 restaurants, 90 plus retail units, and eight hotels, this group of six founding partners has come a long way since their college days. So here's how Al chooses the right locations and rescues franchises in distress. So you're capitalizing franchisors, you're professionalizing, let's call it the operations as a franchisee by being an anchor franchisee. And yeah, is that effectively just the high level thesis for how you operate with <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, any you know, of your brands? Is, yeah, we, we operate in the consumer services space, which is large and growing, right? The consumer represents 70% of the economy. Uh, there's a, a high portion of that that goes to durable goods, but a growing portion of it going to services. And that's been a macro trend for 20 years. And, you know, it's growing, right? The consumer wants services and experiences. They want to better their lives in ways that we didn't consider 20 years ago. So we play in that space. And what we then do is we look at around our lives, where are people starting to invest more of their time and treasure? And, you know, do we think those can be profitable unit models? Are they already profitable unit models? Maybe, you know, they're two to five units, 10 to 20, et cetera. And we start to get to know those people. You know, do we want to work with them? Do we really think this unit model based on the numbers and the demographics and the psychographics can translate into something um, that's, you know, we can mean meaningfully spend our time on for five to seven years. I mean, it's a, there's dollars and then there's time and effort, right? Yeah. And I always like to say that, you know, you want to get out of bed out of the morning put your feet on the floor working on problems that you're excited to solve because they're all going to be hard, right? Um, so when we do that, we find these unit models and then we do our research on the unit model and then we're, where we think the white space is for these unit models. And we have a five-person in-house team that just looks at our white space for us and helps us analyze it and the customer. We then find out, well, Boardwalk and Park Place are available in most of our favorite markets across the country. And why wouldn't we want to own those? They're not developed yet for that franchisor, we're by no means taking all of the best sites. We're taking a small, small fraction of the best sites in the country to get the, the pump rolling, right? So we've found the unit model. We found the founders and management team we want to work with. We've done our you know empirical work. And then we're invested in the franchisor and the brand. We're getting rolling and we're like, okay, let's truly look at, can we accelerate this brand with our own physical store footprint as well? And it's almost like a quasi-corporate store play. But for us, you know, we just know certain markets really well. And if we we have fidelity and belief that this concept can be meaningful nationally, um, and we like the returns on it, it generally allows us to go faster in our franchise growth strategy. So typically, you know, L5 will be about 15 to 20% of the system when we look at an exit for the business, but we might be 70% of the system for the first two and a half years, right? And we don't, I kind of date myself with this reference, but I watched a lot of movies growing up. I didn't <laughs> learn English through watching movies, but I watched a lot of movies. But I always go back to the Hunt for Red October, which is just a great one. And the Soviets had to like learn to turn their safeties off of their torpedoes because they were like too close. Or the Americans had to turn their safeties off. That's what it was. The Americans had to. And so, but for L five, we've been doing this for so long. There are no safeties on our process. Our process is written. So as a franchisee, we can just move really quickly, right? Um, whereas a new franchisee, you know, often is having to ask the question, well, why do we need to be here? And why do, and not in a bad way, they're learning, right? But it tends to be that we're about 50% faster. If you kind of start the tortoise and the hare at the start line together, we're about 50% faster than the field, right? If we recruited somebody to build 10 people to build 10 stores, we'll get 10 built before they will. Last, but definitely not least, is a snippet from one of our most popular episodes of all time. Al Bakta, 
is the principal at CMG Companies, working with brands including Taco Bell, KFC, Marriott, Hilton, IHG, Genghis Grill, Sonic, and Rent-A-Center, just to name a few. With more than 300 restaurants, 90 plus retail units, and eight hotels, this group of six founding partners has come a long way since their college days. So here's how Al chooses the right locations and rescues franchises in distress. What about them did you see where you guys were like, hey, like, yeah, we'll actually take these on, which is a massive operational challenge probably. And are you able to pinpoint things that are wrong, like with the way they're running them? And you're like, we know we can do this better. Like, how do you know that you're going to turn it around is kind of my question. Yeah, look, I mean, I think, you know, again, there's an inherent belief in in ourselves and, and we're risk takers, you know, that's one. And we obviously, you know, believed in the brand, right? And uh, we were able to, it was KFC number one and number two, you know, there were some dual brand KFC Taco Bells in that as well. And so we felt it wasn't the market, it's not the brand. And so then that leads to kind of operations and, and culture and you know, previous ownership, et cetera. And, and, you know, there was reasons why this group of stores became distressed. A lot of times it's balance sheet related and then they're not investing back in the stores and then the culture gets lost on the front lines with our team members. And and so we saw a lot of that, right? You can, you know, mystery shop these stores and you can see reviews and et cetera. And you see, you know, it's basic stuff, you know, at the end of the day, right? It's, it's, we're in the service business. You're in, in, in your product quality has to be right. You got to get the product out quickly in, in the QSR space. And there's, there wasn't a one magic pill that says, Hey, we've, you know, we did this. It's, it's really just changing that entire operational culture and, and getting in there, rolling up our sleeves. I mean, two of the six guys, you know, at the time partners, you know, lived out there in an apartment for six months and, Oof. you know, and spent time away from their families and, and really did that, right. Put the right people in place. And, yep. you know, and that started changing the culture, which leads to better operations. And, you know, and then the financial results usually come after that. Sometimes it takes longer, you know, and you run into roadblocks, but in general, that's the playbook, right? So, okay. I've heard that before. Like I spoke to a little Caesars franchisee who owns close to a hundred of them. Also, I think he's out of Houston. So in the Texas area as well, but um, yeah, he lived in a motel out by his first little Caesars for like a year straight. So I think just for folks listening, all right. I mean, it's not necessarily what you have to do, but you know, I think it's no surprise that you guys are as successful as you are when you're willing to do that, right? A lot of people aren't even willing to work till 5 p.m. on a Friday. And you have, you know, founders who relocated for six months straight. So uh, it just shows the level of commitment. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Listen.